Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the uh, fantastically wonderful figures of history and their somewhat darker sides. Uh, mm -hmm. People with great hair and greater stories. That's the somewhat plug for our topic today. Uh, as always, I'm, I'm Becca. <laughs> I'm Rebecca. And together we're the oh, Rebecca's. Oh yeah, nailed it. Uh, so first and foremost, we want to thank you as always for tuning in, listening. We want to give a big shout out to our patrons who we love and are amazing. Uh, thank you to everybody who's been coming out on tours with us. Um, we're sort of in the dog days of summer, but it's always wonderful to have people uh, joining us, podcast listeners joining us on tour. And if you're thinking August is too hot, we agree. Uh, think about coming to DC September, October, November, uh, and taking a tour with us. Fall is really the best time to be in DC. It's less crowded and less hot. 100% agree. If the August is too much for you and it really is too much for everyone, come visit us in the fall. We are really great when we're not sweating. <laughs> um, I also would like to say great hair and, the, and greater stories. That's really us, actually, as it turns out, me and Becca. Um, <laughs> also, it is the person we're going to talk about today. Um, George Armstrong Custer. We're going to talk about Custer and Custer's Last Stand is better known as the Battle of Little Bighorn and Custer is great. He is someone I feel like we talk about people like this a little bit on our on this pod uh, often. Um, he's a little bit of a fool uh, and a charmer and in that way kind of reminds me of Dan Sickles in a way not his personal life. His personal life is actually like almost rock solid but we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but he has fantastic hair. I will go so far as to say the best head of hair ever produced by West Point. <laughs> they should really put that in their marketing <laughs> material. Eat your heart out, Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> Eisenhower is known for many things, but a great head of hair is not one of them. Is not one of them. This is also, I think, maybe a unique topic for the podcast because George Armstrong Custer may be the only figure that we've talked about who has been portrayed in film by a future U.S. president. Ronald Reagan. Right. Ooh. Reagan plays Custer in a 1940s film called Santa Fe Trail, which is not great. Reagan's not great in it. Um, if you've not seen a lot of Reagan's films, they're like, fine. Yeah. Um, very much of the era. But it's not often that we talk about a historical figure who was portrayed by an American president. Fantastic. That's your fun um, uh, movie fact for today's episode. I love that so very much. Um, Custer is great, and he. I have fun dragging George Armstrong Custer a lot, so we're gonna. This is gonna be a good time. Um, I would like to do a note on terms. Um, the battle that's gonna we're gonna have happen here, the Battle of Little Bighorn, is known. The Native American name for it is the Battle of the Greasy Grass. In any event, it takes place in what is now Montana, um, and Native American uh, is the proper usage today. But it was not when Custer was alive. They would have referred to them as Indians. Um, we will refer to them as Native Americans, and the individual tribes we would, would as they would like to be referred to, while mentioning the improper name that Custer may have would have used. For example, we call them today the Dakota or Lakota, which are two different tribes. Um, Custer would have referred to them under the umbrella of Sioux. Uh, and so that's incorrect, but we're going to at least nod to that as we kind of go through because it's what Custer would have used. Um, so to start off with, 
Custer's born in Ohio. He's got a couple brothers, Thomas and Boston. They are going to factor into this story. They actually are with him at Little Bighorn. And he's a very skilled horseman. Like, apparently him and a horse were, like, meant to be. It was a... Uh, he was a very excellent at it. And so that is going to point him in the direction of West Point. Uh, he decides to go with a military career and goes to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, in those days... The term of service at West Point to go through the military academy was five years. But Custer enrolls in 1857, in the fall of 1857, right as the Civil War is ramping up. And in fact, uh, they're going to, knowing, seeing that the war is coming, West Point kind of shortens his um, term uh, to four years, which places him graduating in 1861 literally days before the Civil War, really. Like, it is already essentially started. Fort Sumter has happened. It was commonly said that Custer is graduates 34th out of 34 people in his class, which is true to a point. Uh, Custer received a record number of demerits. He was apparently very good at pushing everyone's buttons and very good at testing boundaries and had a lot, was a practical joker and a number of things. But the fact that he was last in his class should be tempered with the knowledge that there 23 students drop out for academic issues. So he might have been last, but he didn't drop out. And 22 additional students drop out because they're going to resign and go fight for the Confederacy. So he is the last of basically those who remain at West Point, which is still not great. This would definitely put him <laughs> into, you know, uh, I think... Uh, a stark relief to somebody like Lee, who's graduating at the top of his class, um, you know, we, which we've talked about a few other figures from the same era, as it were, um, who really excel at West Point. Uh, I would not say that Custer is a real standout outside of his horsemanship. Yes, he's a standout, I think, for other yes. reasons. Like he seems to be a personality and kind of people enjoy having him around. And he's a I think he drives people a little insane, particularly those who are like, you know, trying to get him to be serious, but he's not an academic, I think would be a, a fair, um, a fair way to put that. He also has a, we're going to mention this and she's going to come up again, his wife, Elizabeth Bacon or Libby. Uh, he meets her when he's 10 and like, basically like they're little kids and he's like, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And then he does. Um, she is, they're formally introduced um, at, right after he graduates from West Point, and she's not impressed at all. It takes him like a while to like uh, woo her. They marry 14 months after they meet, and she proves extremely devoted to him, uh, which we'll kind of get into a little bit later on. Um, the Civil War, he is literally in the Civil War from Bull Run to Appomattox, like the beginning to the end. Uh, he, Bull Run is less than a month after he graduates from West Point. So here he is, a newly minted second lieutenant, and all of a sudden, like, literally thrust into battle, um, the very first sort of major engagement of the Civil War. Um, he is, has very quickly develops a reputation for something called Custer's Luck. <laughs> which Foreshadowing. As far foreshadowing yeah it runs out but for for now uh custer's luck is basically that he can skate right up to the edge of doing something he's not supposed to and it no one seems to care 
Like if he gets caught, there aren't really consequences. And people just say, oh, shucks, look at that George Armstrong Custer. He's really just a swell guy. He's known as Autie. That's his nickname. Um, apparently, as a child, he couldn't pronounce his middle name. And so Autie is the name that he's stuck with. But he is going to kind of hook up with the right people in the midst of the Civil War. Uh, many different leaders, including uh, George McClellan, take a shine to him. Um, he is recognized, again, for his horsemanship. He's recognized as a cavalry leader. Uh, he is breveted Brigadier General at 23 years old, just before the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, a brevet is a field commission. So you'll sometimes see this a lot, particularly in the Civil War. Uh, being breveted means that you are given a field uh, promotion essentially in the midst of battle they are considered it's not something that's really done anymore today uh, but they are considered a little bit less um, sort of secure than a, a, a promotion outside of battle but being breveted a brigadier general is um, not um, it's a it's a promotion but it's not a full promotion I think would probably be the best way to, to sort of say that but at any rate the fact that he's a brigadier general at 23 is a big deal he is there's this very famous story right about this time where the army and he's on george mcclellan's staff and the army comes to this river and mcclellan and his generals are trying to figure out how deep the river is and they're debating this on the side of the river for a while and finally custer just wheels around with his horse wades into the river and stops in the middle and he turns around and he says this is how deep it is general sir <laughs> Like that's just kind of his personality. He was a big, he was a big self promoter. Uh, he again, we'll post some pictures of him, and he has the best hair. It's like long, blonde, flowing, curly locks. It's fantastic. So he cuts a very like fine figure. I should also mention that when he becomes a brigadier general, he gets to basically choose his own uniform, which is sort of an interesting thing about the army at this time is that um, the further up the chain you go, sort of the more latitude you had for what you could wear, which is not exactly how it works today. And he really liked to look good. He had some personal vanity, but beyond that, this is a guy who very much intended to be on the field leading from the front as it were and so he wanted to be distinguishable and he wanted to, people to know like this guy's a big deal so i always like imagine him with this like great hair and like the most ornate version of a general's uniform you could wear and he's 23 you know so he's young and a bit of a popping cock um but he's also like you said i think the guys like him he's got a personality that um attracts people to him but he cuts a yes. very unique figure he does cut a very unique figure. He is um, brash and convinced of his own. He's got, there's a lot of ego uh, happening here. Um, and so he is going to get involved at, and the, the, he's born in Ohio, but it's kind of important to mention, he always thinks of himself as a Michigander. Uh, and so he's very proud of being from Michigan. And in fact, he will form um, one of the regiments that he's a part of. He calls them the Wolverines, which if you know anything about like college sports today, the University of Michigan is to this day the Wolverines in part because of this. So this is sort of where like Michigan gets this idea that they're Wolverines and he will, um, you know, a charge wolverines that's the sort of battle cries these leading men into battle and he is very um he's on the front lines of battle like he does not he has a great deal of personal bravery but he's also very um 
very much like the glory is very important to Custer. Um, he is um, makes a fantastic spectacle at Gettysburg. Um, he is in, uh, in a, the second and third day of the battle. And on the third day, he is basically going to lead a charge. He ends up actually being uh, the highest loss of any Union cavalry brigade in the entire battle. So he takes significant losses uh, during this cavalry charge uh, in Gettysburg. But when he's people ask about it, he's like, yeah, I lost a lot of guys, but did you see how good we look doing it? Like, that's basically his response. Like, yeah, I mean, but I look good. So he's that kind of a guy. He's a showboat. He's, um, you know, very interested in self-promotion. And he remains in favor as different generals sort of fall out of favor. So McClellan really champions him and McClellan falls out of favor, but Custer does not. And so Custer keeps sort of moving up the ranks and he fights because, so that's really going to be pretty important. Um, he's a pretty significant fighter. He's very brave. Uh, there's a lot of that as well. And so he's going to continue. He's all the way through the war. He's at the Siege of Petersburg, um, a bunch of different smaller battles. His brother, Tom, receives two medals of honor uh, within like a week of each other, by the way. Um, the Medal of Honor in 1864. Um, so he's one of like 19 guys who have received the Medal of Honor twice, which is kind of a thing. Um, he is also going to be, by the end of the war, he is at Appomattox Courthouse. So he is in the room, quite literally, uh, when Lee surrenders to Ulysses S. Grant. Um, he is He watches this happen and then he is going to be given a, his wife is given a gift of the table. So Lee and uh, Grant negotiate the surrender over this small table and General Philip Sheridan thinks so highly of Custer that the table that they use is going to be presented to Custer's wife Libby as a gift uh, which also includes a note to her praising her husband's gallantry so this is kind of a thing she will keep this for the rest of like her life she now she later donates it uh to the smithsonian and actually is in washington it is on display at the american history museum uh so he is him and his wife are the reason we still have this table which we can see daily i love that you go to Aptomatix. they have a replica of the table the real table is at the smithsonian along with sheridan's horse <laughs> yes. uh, they are displayed very close to each other so you can see the table and then you can see winchester General Sheridan's beloved taxidermied horse. Um, so lots of fun little Civil War gems. Um, I love sort of what you mentioned, though, this idea of like custard sort of persevering through the incredible upheaval of who is leading the United States Army during the four years mm -hmm. of the Civil War. And we really should do a podcast on kind of that rotating door of leaders and the struggles the US Army has and really finding somebody who can carry out and execute this war the way in which Lincoln and Edwin Stanton want it to be carried out. And Custer does always seem to kind of stay in the mix no matter who else falls out of favor? And I think a big part of it too is his willingness to be in the field, to be at the front. This is not um, an officer who's hanging back. This is not an officer that's cautious when it comes to no. avoiding danger. And that is going to work out for Custer in that when we get to April of 1865, his reputation is quite vaunted. Yes, he is 
uh, by April of 1865, he's only 25 years old. And on the day that Lincoln dies, in fact, uh, Custer will be promoted to Major General of the Union Volunteers. So April 15, 1865, he is the youngest Major General in the United States Army at 25 years old, which is like a meteoric rise, uh, even given that there's a war, even given a lot of different things. Like to go from second lieutenant in four years to major general is, I mean, today it's unthinkable, but it's just a big deal. Um, 10 days after that, the um, he is going to participate, I'm sorry, a couple of weeks after that, he's gonna participate in uh, the grand review of troops uh, in Washington, D.C. So there's this big victory parade, uh, brand new president, Andrew Johnson is going to sit in the dais with Ulysses S. Grant to sort of, you know, monitor the, this big two days of the Union troops processing through Pennsylvania Avenue down the Capitol, like reviewing the troops. So this this grand victory celebrations parade. Custer steals the show on the second day. He has this prize racehorse called Don Juan. There you go, uh, which is worth a lot of money then, which would be more money today. He is going to uh, re ride in the victory parade. And it, according to him, the horse bolted. Like the horse gets scared and freaked out and bolts. Um, and so he ends up riding ahead of the the um, the sort of troops that he's supposed to be leading. What ends, what it looks like to spectators is that Custer kind of spurs the horse on because he wants to like have the show. So depending on whose version of this you decide to believe, he either uh, makes a spectacle of himself on purpose or the horse bolts. I'm going to go with the fact that he made a spectacle of himself on purpose. But what do I know? <laughs> Um, after the war, he considers a couple of options, including politics, but he doesn't actually want to particularly be in politics. He doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be where he is um, interested. Uh, his wife particularly isn't really keen on him running for uh, politics. He is um, going to do a couple of things. He's in Texas for a little while, uh, and then he is he commands a division, and then he's going to become a the lieutenant colonel of the newly formed Seventh Cavalry. Uh, which are going, the 7th Cavalry Regiment is stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, and he is going to become very quickly a celebrated Indian fighter, Native American fighter. So we have transitioned fully from the war to uh, sort of the Plains Wars, which is the sort of next big engagement the U.S. Army gets into, uh, essentially subduing the West and uh, subduing the Native Americans uh, in the West. And so this is where Custer's main reputation is going to come from. He does not seem to shy away ever from publicity at all. Um, he really likes to be kind of a big deal. Uh, he has a head for self-promotion and he is going to be involved in a couple of different things. Uh, the most notable battle that he is in is called the Battle of the Washita, which is in November of, uh, uh, sorry, 1868. Uh, and he's going to, it's an attack on a Cheyenne encampment, uh, Chief Black Kettle uh, near the Washita River. Uh, and he estimates range wildly in terms of casualties, but it is uh, the Battle of Washita is regarded as the first really substantial U.S. victory in the Southern Plains Wars. It helps to force a large portion of Southern Cheyenne onto a U.S. assigned reservation. So this is sort of where we are. Custer's going to be very involved in 
um, sort of subduing what was the, seen as the Native American threat in the West, uh, forcing them onto reservations and forcing them out of their ancestral lands. So that's kind of where Custer is. He also is then in 1873 going to be, um, he's going to take a survey party, a railroad survey party into the Dakota Territory. And on August 4th, 1873, they're going to clash again with the Lakota. And then they discover gold in the Black Hills in South Dakota. And this is going to feed, feed into what eventually happens with Custer. Uh, but they discover gold in the Black Hills in South Dakota. So uh, near a the present-day town of Custer, South Dakota. So they named the town after him. Uh, the town that you're probably more familiar with, though, is called Dead yeah. Yes. So this is that gold rush. Custer is part of the group that actually finds gold in South Dakota. And a bunch of towns spring up in that area, including Deadwood, uh, which is obviously the most famous. And they make a, a TV show about that for a while there. Um, and that's going to sort of, this is the sort of another one of these boom towns. We talked about this in our gold rush episode. This sort of entire pattern repeats itself in South Dakota. The United States, up until gold was discovered in the Black Hills, no one was in the United States was super duper interested in the Black Hills. It actually was treaty. We had signed a treaty with the Lakota that it was theirs in perpetuity. But then we find gold. And so our opinions <laughs> change a little bit. Our perspective on the Black Hills changes and so it's because Custer's right at this intersection of this more aggressive push to relocate displace and downright murder Native Americans yeah. as we are moving increasingly west and at this moment where we are not even sure what this land is good for and then there's gold and so there's a huge massive amount of corporate interests and government interests in getting there and getting as much gold as possible. And so Custard's, I think, perfectly um, positioned to be right at this intersection uh, of, okay, there's a lot of gold, we want it. There's a lot of land that we need to tame or conquer. And here's a guy who has no compunction about getting out there and doing what he feels needs to be done. Yes. He, again, greatly good at self-promotion. He is perhaps, at this point, he's already famous. So um, a lot of his fame grows after his death, and we'll get into that in a minute. But he is already pretty famous. He's perhaps the most famous Indian fighter. Um, he is very good at self-promotion. So when his 7th Cavalry finds gold, this is going to be a big deal. Gold Rush is going to really... Uh, people rush into South Dakota. You have this famous name. You've got gold. Suddenly, our treaty obligations to the Lakota are completely uh, irrelevant, and they're going to the United States, as they have done many times before and will do many times after this, completely ignores the agreement that we've made with uh, the Lakota and the Dakota over what is their sacred land, like the Black Hills. Part of the reason we call them the Black Hills is because it's covering up the, we're trying to obscure the idea that this is sacred Native American land. This is also very close to where you're going to find Mount Rushmore, which is also on sacred Native American land. Yeah, not great. <laughs> then I want to talk about the Velknap affair. The Belknap Affair is fantastic. Bega, did you know that there has only been in the history of this country one cabinet official that has been impeached? I did know that. I, of course <laughs> you did that. And this is him. Like, there have been others that have been threatened with impeachment. There have been others where articles of impeachment have been drawn there up. There are others that resign over scandal and leave voluntarily sure. many times. 
Sure. But William Belknap is basically caught almost red-handed with his hand in the cookie jar, and he resigns, but the House of Representatives is like, nah, dude, we're going to try you anyway. And so they, even after his resignation, they're going to, like, create this big deal. This is a complicated... Belknap, who also, by the way, I should mention, is buried at Arlington Cemetery. He is buried in a prominent spot, and he has a face. Like, his face is on his grave. It's and guys, really we'll put this in the show notes. He has a great face, and he has a pretty epic beard. It's not quite Stanton-esque in its epicness, no. but Belknap's beard is pretty solid. Uh, and I do it think the Belknap bad. affair is one of those things that contributes to this conception that Grant's presidency is so plagued by controversy, um, even though Grant really is at no fault for any of Belknap's activities activities per se he is and yeah, we can debate we'll it touches debate. a little close it touches a little close we'll, we'll touch on this but i think that this okay. is one of those things that when we talk about the popular conception of grant's presidency and we talk about how corrupted it is belt maps mm-hmm. one of those really big like red yes. pointy signs of like trouble yes yes so belt is involved he's the secretary of war he gets involved in a bribery scandal involving the president's brother, Orville, Orville Grant. Basically, the army grants monopolies to Orville Grant at frontier trading posts. So when you're in the army, you're in the middle of the West or whatever, you can't spend your money. You basically have to spend your money at army trading posts. You can't spend it anywhere else. And so by giving a monopoly to one particular person who will then jack up prices, you're forcing military guys who don't make a lot of money to spend their money on overpriced goods. It's basically you're bilking soldiers out of money. You're, um, it's price gouging. It's essentially wartime profiteering, you know? And so this looks really terrible. This is the president's brother that's involved in this, the Secretary of War. Like, you can kind of see why Grant, like, is painted as corrupt because it's really, like, he's making bad choices here. Um, Custer gets involved in this because he testifies to Congress. And this is a big deal. Again, he's famous. So he's going to come in front of Congress. And, like, obviously they didn't have, like, flashing photography and all that back then. But you can imagine today, like, this massive congressional hearing, like, all sorts of, like, reporters. That's kind of this atmosphere. Custer is a big, famous guy. Uh, and so him testifying in, in front of Congress is um, a big deal. Belknap is impeached, and the case is sent to the Senate for trial. Um, Custer is going to then ask the impeachment managers to release him from further testimony. He does not want to continue to testify, uh, and he gets excused. But Custer is going to leave Washington without authorization. So he wants to, um, Grant is not thrilled about this. Um, uh, because he's been implicated by Custer and is going to have Custer arrested as he tries to leave D.C. without permission, which prompts charges of, a, of Grant, like, overstepping his bounds. He's a dictator. You know, this is a big, he's a little Caesar. And so this is this big scandal on top of a scandal. Custer's involved in it, and it just looks really terrible for Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant wants to sideline Custer, but worries that if the the Indian campaign, the Native American campaign they're about to launch fails, if Custer's not there, it will look like he's not sending his best guys. And so because of Custer's reputation, because he's got such a big like national presence, he is, over Grant's objections, going to be sent back into the West uh, towards uh, the coming campaign 
uh, in the Black Hills. And it will be people like Philip Sheridan and William Sherman who are going to Grant yeah. and saying, look, maybe you're not happy about this. Maybe you don't like the guy, but we can't win these Indian wars without him. Uh, and there, he's got, Custard's got some very important people who, despite all of this, are very much going to go to the president and convince Grant to keep Custer in, in, in place where he where he needs to be in their mind. Right. And they also say, look, at this. if this fails and you haven't sent Custer, like, you're going to look stupid. You're going to, it's going to look like you threw these men's lives away. And so, and I also should mention, Ulysses S. Grant, this is, he actually was relatively, not by our standards, but by his standards, he was, had a relatively sympathetic policy towards the Native Americans. That's going to change really fast, but he actually is going to be the first person to appoint a Native American to the, a presidential cabinet. Like he's, a, he had actually a policy of, of conciliation and, um, you know, was not aggressive in an aggressive posture uh, at this point. And that's something that is going to eventually come back to bite him. But at this point, Grant has actually a, um, a very decent position as far as Native Americans are concerned. Um, tensions are rising between the United States Army and the Lakota and Cheyenne, mostly over the Black Hills. The gold in the Black Hills has forced the United States to, again, ignore our treaty obligations. And the, um, the army is going to, um, the Native Americans refuse to be relocated. They're going to insist that this land is theirs, and they're essentially going to squat there. Um, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, these are the two names that everyone has heard of, but they stage a protest, draw other thousands of other Native Americans to their cause. And so by this time, gold had been discovered two years earlier. Um, thousands of uh, Native Americans are in the Little Bighorn area. Today, this Little Bighorn is in Montana, but it's on the eastern edge of Montana, not that far from South Dakota. So this is all the same. State boundaries are different now, but this is all the same area. And so there are tens of thousands of Native Americans kind of in this general area. Custer and the 7th Cav will be sent back out to sort of subdue them. This is where we get into some problems, at least for Custer anyway. <laughs> Custer and the 7th Cavalry are going to head that spring out to force the Native Americans onto their reservations. Custer has been ordered by General Terry, his commanding officer, uh, to scout ahead for enemy troops, but not engage. Custer does not have enough men. Custer's got about 600 guys. On June 25th, Custer discovers the encampment in, at, the little, at Little Bighorn, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Native Americans. And Native Americans, they're with their whole tribe this is a whole group of people this isn't just fighting men although it is many of them this is also women children old people this is an entire encampment of thousands of people and custer has not has been told not to engage because he doesn't have enough men but he does because custer is a fool <laughs> um and Rather than wait for reinforcements, Custer is going to press on. He's going to, in fact, divide his force. So he's only got about 600 guys. He's going to divide in, um, his two majors, Major Benteen and Major Reno, take them in different directions. So he's got 200 guys now uh, against a force of thousands. Sitting Bull, who's older, is going to 
direct the women and children to safety. But Crazy Horse is the warrior. He's going to ride into battle. And they are quickly over, the United States Army is quickly overwhelmed by over 3,000 Lakota and Cheyenne and Arapaho warriors. Um, Custer's last stand is um, they're in a terrible position. They are kind of at the bottom of a, of a gorge. And they're very quickly, like, overwhelmed by a vastly superior force. They, um, all 200, just to speed to the end, all 200 of Custer's men under the men under his direct command will die within the space of about three hours, um, including Custer. It is, <coughs> reports of this are varied. There's obviously no surviving account from anyone in the United States, but so all the accounts of this battle we have are from the Native American combatants, for whom English is not their native language, for whom they have an ax to grind of their own. So a lot of the sort of firsthand accounts of what happens in Custer's last moments are chaotic, they are confusing, and there's a bunch of different, we never, we will never probably really know sort of exactly what happens. What scholars now think is that Custer dies relatively early which would account for uh, the confusion of his men. They don't have a, they're facing a superior force and their leader has died. They're confused. They don't quite know what to do and their discipline falls apart. And that sort of is, seems to be what kind of happens uh, to Custer and sort of how they, they are so easily overwhelmed. Um, they, so all 200 men under Custer's direct command die. The other two, Major Bentina, Major Reno, one of them will engage the Native Americans a little later on uh, and live to tell about it. The other one kind of runs away and is going to be seen as the the villain of this uh, in the aftermath of all of this. Uh, Marcus Reno is going to be the one who kind of takes a lot of the, um, because he survives, he kind of takes a lot of the blame for this. <laughs> And in the aftermath, the Dakota attacked the other two parts of the 7th Cav, who are reinforced a day later. So General Terry shows up with reinforcements uh, and um, they're, they're shores up the 7th Cavalry position. Custer's body is going to be discovered near his two brothers. They're all going to be buried at Last Stand Hill. They're going to be buried very close to where they fall. And this happens, I should mention, June 25th is the day of the Battle of Little Bighorn. News doesn't travel instantly back then. We don't have the Twitters or the TikToks. So news arrives relatively speedily back east, though, and hits right on July 4th, which is, this is not any July 4th, Becca, is it? It's not, no. <laughs> it's the the centennial. It's like the big 100th anniversary. It's so exciting. Huzzah for America. We've made it through this civil war. We've come back reunited. We're conquering the West. And yes. then news breaks of what is seen by many as this sort of debilitating, horrifying defeat of these brave American heroes at the hands of these, you know, bloody, terrible savages. And so this is going to rile people up in a big way. Yes. We're also on the eve of an election. 1876 is an election year, and we were planning on a whole pot on the 1876 election because it is crazy town. But this news hits like a bomb right at 
this moment where there's a lot of pride in America, a lot of celebration. All of the sudden, like our westward expansion has been halted by these bloodthirsty Native Americans who are massacring American soldiers. And so this is really going to cause a right hand turn in the sort of mood of the country. All of a sudden, there's a laser focus on what's going out west. All of a sudden, Ulysses S. Grant's conciliatory policy to the Native Americans looks weak. It looks, you know, you can't reason with these people. Look how savage they are. Look what they've done to our guys. Look what they've done to Custer. Uh, and so he's, because he's very famous and well-liked, this attack is immediately called an aftermath or a massacre. In the aftermath, the army will investigate, but it's a very cursory investigation. They basically want to find what they want to find. They don't want to ruin the reputation of those who survived. Um, and they're going to do what you'd expect them to do, which is, you know, pin this essentially this is a, a gross massacre by the Native Americans and is going to um, really, there's a real shift here in Native American policy uh, in the United States. A lot of this will be promoted by Custer's widow. Libby Custer is, I think, a really fantastically interesting woman. She is incredibly intelligent. She and she's an excellent horsewoman on her own. She is. Um, she never works, although she's constantly in motion. She's turns out to be a great writer. She's very self-aware. Her and Custer's letters to each other are filled with all sorts of like double entendres. They clearly had a very like tempestuous relationship, kind of hot, 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 and then not, not, not. Um, and she is in the aftermath of this, going to devote the entire rest of her life to her husband's memory. She has, she devotes the 12 years of her marriage and then she will be a widow for 57 years. And every single minute of that 57 years, she devotes to his memory, to burnishing his reputation, to blaming the other two guys, Benteen and Reno, about Bighorn. It is their fault. She is going to, um, she's really, she writes these very vivid accounts and some of actually the best accounts we have of life on the plains at this point. She's a, clearly a very commanding writer, but he's her only human subject. Like she never writes about any other human. It is possible that she never so much as thought about any other human. Like he <laughs> is her entire focus. And her focus is sort of rehabbing his reputation. She's really responsible. She's a little intense. Like if you haven't caught that Libby's intense. Yeah. But it's also, it's very much, um, it's the hero's narrative. Her husband is a hero. She will do everything she can make sure. Other military leaders of the time, as much as he sort of adored, don't necessarily think Custard made a good call. I mean, Sheridan, General Sheridan will sort of be critical of Custard's decisions. Grant himself basically says it's a sacrifice of troops brought on by Custer himself that was wholly unnecessary. Grant sees mm -hmm. it for what it is. Grant's a military man. He he sees that this was a, a dumb move. Um, yeah. But Libby is so much more uh, convincing. Her narrative is so much more attractive uh, to people. It's what the nation's sort of craving for. And there are just really long reaching impact of this because so much of what we get of Custer and pop culture comes from what she herself writes and what she encourages contemporaries, poets and, and painters. He's depicted in 
um, art more than almost any other figure of his era um, as sort of these heroic sort of Western paintings. Um, and that's going to play out for the next really like 100 years, these sort of first books, poems, paintings, and then films that tell this often erroneous story or highly biased story of what this fight on the plains look like. It's really amazing that she turned like she turns this into like the battle of Little Bighorn becomes Custer's last stand. She sort of morphs this very consciously and she knows she's doing this. She morphs this into like the battle of Thermopylae last stand, you know, like that's the sort of mythology that she creates and promotes and really like there's a um, a painting that is commissioned in part by her that basically gets attached to Budweiser and is in every single bar in the West for like decades of Custer's Last Stand. It is very possible you've seen a copy of this painting. It's a very famous um, painting of Custer's Last Stand. It's this very valorized view of her husband, of his reputation. A year after his death, she's going to spearhead moving his body from the little bighorn where it had been she insists that he should be buried at west point at the military cemetery uh, at the academy at west point which is where he is today and ultimately where she would be buried with him um she is just re she's extraordinary um she lives into her 90s and dies in 1933 like really a tremendously interesting life and one of his biographers said that you know had she been a man she would have done extraordinary things but she was very happy to be basically his promoter that was her role there is there she was very critical of her sister-in-law for getting married again and in fact when her sister-in-law dies Libby Custer insisted on her sister-in-law's tombstone it reads that she was the sister-in-law of George Armstrong Custer so not that she was the wife of his brother but that she was the sister-in-law of this great hero like that's the level of like insanity we're talking about there is up until the end of her life she will correspond with anybody who is ever connected with the 7th Cavalry she attends all sorts of veterans benefits and things like this is her he is her entire life for nearly 60 years of widowhood which is an extraordinary commitment yeah we sort of um, um didn't mention this explicitly but i mean he's 36 when this happens he's young yeah. she's even younger and then she lives such yeah. a long life that um it gives her multiple generations honestly to to tell his tale and build this legend and recast mm -hmm. him in this particular role and she does it with like an intensity that I think is almost unmatched by just about any other widow in American history. I know. She's, and she, like Dan Sickles, she lives longer than everybody else who participates. And so she propels the narrative. You know, like Benteen and Reno, she outlives both of them and really sort of sells this narrative of her husband as this valiant hero. It's really amazing. Um, for the Native Americans, this is their largest victory in the Plains Wars, but in the end, it does them more harm than good. Um, as it should not be surprising to anybody with any familiarity with the way the U.S. Army treats this. Um, they are seen as bloodthirsty, as it, you can't negotiate with this people like this. There is nothing, this is really going to sour public opinion against Native Americans. There is very little appetite after this for any sort of conciliation or... Um, There's no interest in anything. treaties. There's no interest in... No coming together in some sort of cooperative way. Um, it is 
we need to ramp up. And in fact, right up to this point, the uh, the U.S. Congress was getting ready to downsize the size of the U.S. Army. The thought was the civil war is behind us. The West is is mostly settled, but we don't need a lot of troops to handle that, um, as it were. We can leave a lot of it to private interests. And then this happens and Congress goes, oh, let's ramp it up. So they actually expand the U.S. military, particularly sending 2,500 more men out west to sort of confront. And so it really changes not just sort of public opinion, but also truly our policy in terms of military power in the West. It really does. Um, And is part of the reason I think Grant is seen as not a great president. He actually had a, a, his Native American policy was well received up until Little Bighorn. And all of a sudden he looks weak because he, his position was conciliate uh, and sort of um, have some kind of arrangement uh, that starts to look re- uh, weak. Within five years of this, all of the Cheyenne and Lakota are confined to reservations. So that's how quickly this happens. Uh, they are all confined to reservations. Uh, the Black Hills are never given back. The Eventually, like 40 years after this, the government will acknowledge that they in fact took the Black Hills illegally and will offer compensation the relevant Dakota and Lakota tribes refuse the money, continue to refuse the money. They want to live on their land and they continue to insist to this day that it is theirs, that it is their ancestral land. So this is still for um, Native Americans, there's, it is still a raw and open wound. Um, Custer, there's a whole book written by a Native American activist that says Custer died for your sins, which is basically like, you know, pointing the finger at uh, the army that Custer was not a hero. Custer was not praiseworthy. Custer was, um, uh, Custer himself took part in atrocity and in a, in a sense kind of got what was coming to him. So there's a lot of mixed um, opinion about Custer. He was, I think, the, be- the most accurate thing we can say is that he was definitely a fool and believed a little bit uh, in his own hype. He was a little too high on his own supply, I think, uh, as far as his ego. Um, but... Um, that is George Armstrong Custer and the Battle of Little Bighorn. Uh, I will say, if you are listening and haven't been out to what is now Montana, but this part of the Black Hills, um, it's well worth visiting. They've done a wonderful job in terms of interpreting the site today to really see this from the perspective of the Lakota and the Cheyenne and the Native Americans that that lived in their ancestral homes uh, as well as when you get there i think it's really hard to understand why custer thought he could win because when you're there and you're standing where the seventh cavalry was and you're like there's no way like this is not winnable um I, if you ever get a chance to go out there it really is a place where i think being on location helps you really understand what what went so wrong and it makes you question sort of custer and i think high on his own supply is a great way he just he believed he believed in his own myth, right? His own myth making, mm-hmm. right? This invincible thing. I think a lot of it's wrapped up in his youth and how successful he is at a young age. And to to have survived four bloody years of the Civil War, to have come out of that war as successful as he was, I think instilled a false sense of confidence and a false I sense in his he... own ability and invincibility. 
invincibility, I think, is really it. Like, he, you know, carries with him out there the sense of his own invincibility. And I feel like he had never, that sense of invincibility had never been seriously challenged. He'd never run up against, like, something that he couldn't defeat or figure out. And by this time, like, we're going on years of this, of him, you know, continuing to win against strange and, and large odds. And so he thinks that he can do anything and then gets sort of proven wrong in a sort of very disastrous um, set of events that <laughs> that end up taking his life and the life of the 200 men he led into the battle. Uh, and the last thing so, I will say about Custer too, uh, and we sort of touched on this though, but this is I think a great um, sort of example of what happens when so much of American history is taught through culture, whether it be sort of the books that are written, especially highly fictionalized books about this, and then films. This is one of those American history topics that when the early films are being done in the 20s, of course they're going to do Custer's Last Stand. And there are so many movies, there are probably about three dozen films that focus mm -hmm. on Little Bighorn or on Custer and his life. And they're all almost entirely fully inaccurate, if not wildly biased. Um, there's an Errol Flynn film, They Died With Their Boots On, which is kind of a fun watch because Flynn is great in it. Um, but it's just like, there's no connection to reality. But you can imagine that people are watching this and they think that this is how the, the West was. And they think this mm -hmm. is sort of how it went down. And I think that when we talk today about really understanding America's past, we have to also understand how much of these events almost immediately get twisted and distorted through a wider cultural lens. Uh, and of course, Libby plays such a big role in that. Um, but even beyond that, I mean, these, these artists and these poets and then these filmmakers really the narrative is so compelling it doesn't matter if it's true or not that we want to think of him as this genius hero that's taken down and you also like if you're making films in the 20s and 30s you grew up hearing about this from your parents and your grandparents who like grandparents probably lived through it like they heard about this when they were kids so this is like generations of myth building and Libby Custer is directing a lot of it and as two people who are really interested in women's history it is so interesting to me that so much of this um, narrative about the West and about Custer comes because of Libby Custer like this is so such a big she devotes her whole life to this and really is in so many ways responsible for a lot of the myth building about the West and about Custer and Little Bighorn uh, specifically so it is um, just such a, an interesting um, moment, intersection of a lot of different things, I would say. Agreed. Yeah. Great, great topic. I think this also just makes me think of several other things that we should definitely talk about. There's a lot um, in this sort of post-Civil War era uh, in terms of the West and how America gets shaped beyond uh, the Mississippi River that I think is worth exploring in future episodes. Yes. I agree. Well, thank you guys so much, as always, for tuning in, for listening. If you liked the episode, be sure to follow us on all our social media. You can reach out to us on Twitter at TourGuideTell, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram at TourGuideTellAll. You can always email us, TourGuideTellAll at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, reflections, ideas for future topics. Um, we love to hear from you guys. Yes, we want to hear from you. We are developing our winter and spring um 
schedule. So if you have something that you want to talk about, if there is something we've mentioned, uh, if there's a Western topic that you want to hear about, we want to serve the people. Uh, so let us know. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you for coming along on a journey with us. We will be back in September uh, with more exciting stuff. Bye, guys. Bye.